0: Good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to make a start. Thangham is on her way, so uh, we, I think we'd, we'll start make a start and then uh, she'll be here to join us shortly. Uh, so welcome to this Institute of Government event uh, entitled Do We Need to Rewire the System of Standards in Public Life? Sponsored uh, by the FDA. Um, I think you can all probably understand quite well why we've decided this is an important topic to be discussing uh, today. We've had... Uh, A period, a quite remarkable period, I think, of 18 months, the period uh, in the run-up to Boris Johnson's resignation where we saw a series of ethical scandals in government, Westminster and Whitehall, uh, from lobbying by David Cameron and Owen (coughs) Paterson to Matt Hancock's breach of the Covid rules, wallpaper gate, party gate, many gates. Um... And of course, uh, not one but two prime ministerial uh, advisers on on ministers' interests having resigned over over Boris Johnson's period in office. So we wanted to ask this question, as these ethical scandals have proliferated, and we've seen questions asked over uh, the chief of staff to the new prime minister as well in recent um, uh, days. Is it time to redesign the system of standards in public life? Is it not up to the job? And of course we've seen some interesting proposals from the Labour Party in terms of an independent ethics commission on this front. So we thought we would bring together this fantastic panel, um, some of whom are a little unwell, but here nonetheless, thank you very much Chris, Um, to discuss this this important topic today. Um, And As I say, we want to look at whether the standard system needs rewriting, how Labour's proposals could work, and whether current watchdogs inside and outside Parliament could be doing a better job. Uh, So, I'll just uh, give you a few housekeeping uh, points, and then I'll introduce the panel, and we'll get going. Uh, So this event is on the record. Uh, There will be a sound recording available on the IFG website afterwards, if you'd like to listen to it again, or recommend it to any of your colleagues to listen to. Um, As I say, uh, it's very kindly sponsored by the FDA. We'll be tweeting with a hashtag, uh, IFGLab. 22, and you can follow the event at IFG events on Twitter. Uh, we'll come to the audience for questions uh, in the last, uh, at least in the last 20 minutes. Um, please wait. We'll have a handheld microphone, so we'll bring that around uh, so you can uh, speak into the microphone. Then your uh, remarks will be recorded for, for posterity. Um, and uh, with that, I think we can get going. So, I, as I say, we've got a brilliant panel to discuss this topic today. Starting on the end with Chris Bryant, MP, who is chair of the Commons Standards Committee, hoping shortly to be joined by Thangam Debonair, who is, of course, shadow leader of the House of Commons, with responsibility for many of these uh, interesting standards issues. Um, We have uh, Duncan Haynes, who is director of policy and programmes at Transparency International. We have Tim Durrant, who is associate director uh, at the IFG, and... um, uh, leads all our work on standards in government, uh, which has been plenty busy over the last year. Uh, and last but not least, Amy Levisage, who is Assistant Sec- uh, General Secretary at the FDA. So, we're going to start off, I'm going to put some questions directly to the panel, uh, and then as I say, we'll have a bit of discussion and then we'll come to you all for your questions. I'm sure you will have lots of questions. Um, so, Chris, can I kick off with you? Um, you were a real critic uh, of, uh, no. uh, <laughs> um, of Boris Johnson's approach to uh, standards in public life. Do you think his administration... <laughs> approach to standards in <laughs> <and> public life? <laughs> that's, that's doing a lot of work. <laughs> 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 um, do you think his period in office did lasting damage to our standards system? Or do you think it just highlighted things which are wrong with the system? Or do you think it just tested it and showed us that the system is in fact working?
1: Uh, I think he was a disgrace and um, I think he did a lot of uh, long-term damage to Britain's reputation and to the reputation of politics in general. And that matters to me because if people don't believe in the political system and in democracy, then I have no means of doing the things that I want to do in terms of changing the world for a, to make it a better place in the way that I understand, as opposed to the way that others from different political traditions might... Um, I think he, um, there were some elements which showed that our government in, our, in the system that we run has far too much power. It's, it's a bit winner takes it all. I, know, I feel as if I've heard too much about this year, but, um, uh, but it is, once you get to be Prime Minister, basically, as long as you can maintain your majority in the House of Commons, you can do pretty much anything. You can choose not to have an advisor on the ministerial code, even though the ministerial code says that you shall have one. Because um, then you just rewrite the ministerial code. You can um, uh, you, you can refuse to allow the, your advisor on the ministerial code to investigate you. Um, you can, or um, even to publish and um, the report into bullying by one of your senior ministers. And you can um, decide not to table the motion that's been uh, that has gone through proper processes through in the standards committee, um, or to seek to amend it as they did over in Patterson weirdly over own Patterson, for a moment it felt like it showed that the system didn't work at all and then suddenly the system sort of came back into shape but um, uh, that took an awful lot of hard work um, and um, I'm not sure that incidentally the ICGS and the, Inde- so the Independent Complaint and Grievance Scheme in the House of Commons, some of you may have seen the stories this weekend in the newspapers, I'm not sure that it's quite working right. I think a lot of work needs to be done there. We've got to have a statutory independent advisor on the ministerial code, I think. I would put the ministerial code into statute as well. Um, And I, The the one thing I think I'm quite proud of (laughs) in the Standards Committee is I think that the model, which I didn't put together, but the model of seven lay members and seven members of parliament actually works quite well. Um, There are those who would say it should all be taken out of parliament, um, and no MP should take, uh, play any role at all, there is a downside to that. It's quite interesting, the lay members often go, I had no idea that's what you did. Um, and so there is, it is, there is a valuable um, relationship. Um, but the, the, you know, the bottom line is always, I think on all these issues about second jobs and all that kind of stuff, um, is you, there, there can only be the national public interest as far as an MP's actions are concerned. And it's where there's a conflict of interest that you have to have the toughest rules possible. Um, that's the kind of thing that Boris Johnson tried, tried to tear up. But, as many have said, even you know, proroguing in Parliament depends on um, on the good boys principle. I mean, and I say boys because it has yeah, quite often been boys. But, um, you know, if you could imagine Boris Johnson being Prime Minister to, I don't know, Edward Eighth. At the time of um, the run up to uh, the Second World War, I'm not sure where we would have ended up.
0: And just as a follow up, I mean, you've stood back as chair of the Privileges Committee, but of course, the investigation into Boris Johnson is still underway there for whether he lied to the House of Commons. How do you, how do you see that? Go uh, I, yes, I, I
1: recused myself, which has introduced the word re- "recused" to lots of people. I, I, I've been so, uh, quite often. It's I've refused myself, um, and my husband will tell you I'm not very good at that. Um, I uh, I think it's really important that the that the whole process proceeds. I think it's very unlikely that the government will. Um, uh, well, the only people who could stop it uh, is the government. Because they're the only people who can table a motion to rescind the um, the, the original motion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, they tried all sorts of shenanigans over that motion, if, as you if you recall as well. And yet again, I think, to my mind, one of the things that I would love to reform about Parliament is that you should have a proper business of the House committee that decides all the business of Parliament. Um, government should be allowed to have the second reading of a bill within a fixed number of weeks, and, and so you should be able. But it's perfectly possible in every other democracy in the world um, to take that out of the government's hands um, so that it's a House decision. And not, um, I, f- I hate the word parliamentarian, um, but I, I think we need a few more parliamentarians, people who to say, you know what, parliament does come first, it's not. And, and government um, should be fettered
0: sometimes. Thank you. Amy, can I come to you next? What are the FDA's priorities in terms of, of reinforcing standards? Are you in the in the um, position of we need to rewire the whole thing, or is it more about uh, tweaking the system, the system, to make it work better? Uh,
2: so thanks, um, uh, thanks, Hannah, and, and just um, to say it's absolutely fantastic that the FDA um, are, have been able to partner with IFD. Um, uh, to deliver this. Uh, we've done so much work over standards uh, over the last um, couple of years, and um, uh, personally, both you and I, Hannah, have done lots and lots of work on this. It's great, uh, great to be here. Um, and As the, a as the trade union that represents uh, civil servants and, and staff employees in the House of Commons, um, our focus primarily on standards is around bullying, harassment, and sexual harassment, and the relationships uh, uh, with staff um, and, you know, I, I take Chris's point that um, in, par- in Parliament uh, that there can be a few improvements made to the, to the system, but we actually think it's been a tremendous success and it's been, it was a, a, a seismic decision to have full independence there. And that does show <coughs> that we can have that. And, you know, the sky doesn't fall in. Um, we can have full independence, we can put in checks and balances, and, and that system can work. So Sorry, know. Amy. I'm
1: not wanting. I, I agree uh, with no, all of that. The bit I don't like is I just don't think it's functioning well enough, and uh, yeah, it needs, it needs to get tougher.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we'll have some some chance to be able to discuss some of the ways in which and um, their improvements can be made. Because we would also like to see some some improvements too. And um, I mean, where we need to to move to is having um, effective processes to deal with ministerial uh, bullying. Um, and obviously we've seen. Um, that the whole system uh, over the last couple of years has really been exposed as this completely murky and farcical arrangements that we've got, and we do need, um, uh, we do need to deal uh, with that. And the rules are clear. Uh, the ministerial code is very, very clear. It does say in there we actually had to have it written in a few years ago to say you must not bully, harass, and sexually harass your staff. We'll leave to one side the fact that that probably should have been obvious to most people. <laughs> why you'd need to write that down? Uh, but nevertheless it was written down and it is crystal clear but the problem that we've got is that those rules are absolutely meaningless if you have no mechanism to enforce them and there are no consequences for breaking them and that's what we've seen over the last uh, few years you know, we used to have this line that we would say in Parliament that you know MPs can't continue to mark their own homework but it's the same thing in uh, with the ministers the ministers or the prime ministers on's not only marking the homework he's setting the homework and then coming up with the conclusion well the dog ate the homework so um, it 's a complete uh, mess But we're not thankfully we 're not starting with a blank sheet of paper because we 've got the Committee on standards in public life their report um, on upholding standards to set out a series of recommendations which are excellent um, and we would like to see those recommendations fully implemented and we're really pleased um, with Angela Rayner's commitment to the Independent Integrity and Ethics Commission hopefully we'll, we'll be able to discuss some of the details of why those recommendations and, and, and why that independence and um, what bits, there, how they're going to improve the system. But you know, come back to fundamental principles here. It cannot be right that we've got ministers in departments that can behave in such a way that if the civil servants behaved in that way they would get dismissed and the ministers still remain and it can't be right that we've got ministers who bully civil servants or harass civil servants they have to leave because there's no means of dealing with that they leave their employment dedicated talented and fantastic civil servants, and, and we saw this in Parliament, and Hannah and I will know um, individuals who were incredibly talented, incredibly dedicated in Parliament, and left. That was a loss to Parliament, and the bullies remained. That fundamentally can't be right. It's a basic right that we're all treated with dignity and respect in the workplace, and that is our priority.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Amy. Um, Duncan, can I come to you? Sure. What, obviously, Transparency International too is in the name, what role? do you think transparency should be playing in uh, our, our public standard system? And in terms of you know, the last 12 years of, of Conservative governments, have we, have we been going in the right direction?
3: Um, thank you, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question, <Well>, perhaps. <laughs> uh, yes, you know, transparency is really useful, um, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that. Um, I don't think it's sufficient, uh, I think it's uh, a necessary means to an end, um, it, it's there to help us hold power to account. Power needs to be held to account if you don't want it to end up serving only its own interests instead of the national interest. Um, and so we need to accompany transparency with measures that ensure that you get that accountability. And Ultimately, we want to get to a situation where the way things work because of that establishes norms of behaviour that almost become second nature that are virtuous norms of behaviour. So that you don't find yourself trawling over transparency returns uh, because actually, partly because people know they're there, partly because people just come to understand that's not how we do things in our democracy, Um, you you deal with the problem at source, you prevent it from happening in the first place. Uh, In many important ways, government is becoming less transparent. Um, Twelve years ago, Cameron's first government uh, boldly claimed that it was going to be the most transparent government ever. Uh, It it hosted one of the first uh, global open government partnership conferences, had some quite ambitious National action plans for openness in government. Um, uh, these days, it publishes those plans at the very last minute with um, rather inadequate an consultation and certainly not the spirit of that process, which is one of co creation, that society and government collaborate on what would be meaningful openness in government rather than government, like it does with every other consultation, only consults on the things that it already has decided that it wants to do. Um, We've always had evasive answers to parliamentary questions. Um, Before I was in politics, I worked as a consultant in the Cabinet Office in a team that um, reported to Ed Miliband. And I I think Ed Ed Miliband would have been as dismayed as I was um, in that office uh, if he'd known... um, quite how much those uh, officials, senior servants, civil servants I regret to say, uh, relished the, the sport of being as evasive as possible in answering those <coughs> questions. And you know that was 13, 14, probably 14 years ago. Um, but we've seen uh, a lot worse since. Uh, we, we had a clearing house in the Cabinet, uh, designed to control the way government responded, or chose not to respond to freedom of information requests. Um, uh, which effectively blacklisted journalists uh, in order to uh, deny them the opportunity to bring information to the public. Um, uh, Under David Cameron, uh, the leaders group of large donors every year to the Tory party who would get to meet regularly with the Prime Minister by virtue of the fact that they parted with cash um, and selling cash to active politicians um, which happens in all sorts of ways and I think is um, regrettable, um, is probably in its most extreme sense there, he, he at least published who got to come to those dinners and meet with those ministers. Uh, that, that stopped under his successors. Um, uh, previous Labour prime ministers uh, would publish the guests that they invited to hospitality at the public's expense at checkers and the like. Um, and these, um, the, the, the extent of transparency in that area has... Um, uh, fallen into uh, non-observance. So in lots of small ways, um, things are less transparent. Um, We think government meetings, who who government meets, especially private interests, is an important thing to have transparent. The way government publishes it is through PDFs several months after the event, hidden somewhere on a a government website. Um, If you're interested in that sort of thing, we publish a website, openaccess.transparency.org.uk, where we try and make that information as accessible as possible, enable you to analyse what's happening over time, and for example, by doing that sort of thing, instead of having an unread PDF document on a government website, I can sit here and tell you that over the last 10 years, uh, the most frequent uh, entity to meet with government ministers, uh, external entity is uh, BAE Systems, uh, which has managed to have uh, in excess of a meeting a month with a government minister for 10 years. Uh, and so you know, there, there is something to be said for putting this information in the public domain, in my view, but only if we can then use that to hold people to account.
1: Duncan, sorry to be a pain, but one of the things I've noticed about, because do, I've done a trawl of the foreign offices yes. once for last year, no, uh, the British, according to, if the returns are correct, and I doubt that they can be, um, Liz Truss only had two meetings in three yes. months yeah. of any kind whatsoever, one of which was with Tony Blair. Um, and the other was with a Financial Times journalist. Um, the, the Foreign Secretary, neither Dominic Raab nor Truss, met, met with anybody for four months. Yeah. Not a single person. Yeah. To be fair. So and not true. a single Foreign Office minister um, met with a an overseas counterpart
4: or diplomat for the whole of 2021. So not, I don't want to defend the government, but um, <laughs> the rules the rules are different from meeting foreign governments. They don't have to declare on the same terms their meetings with foreign governments. So that'll be why the Foreign Office. Returns but do. why? But that's why. And that's that's not declared anywhere. But but, but Chris's
3: underlying point is absolutely right. That these these disclosures are incomplete and inadequate. Next week at the Conservative Party conference, ministers will 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 be sat next to party donors. Um, They will get the same kind of access that they would uh, get in other meetings. And yet somehow. The government minister is officially not treated as a government minister for that meeting. And so none of those meetings will appear on those ministerial declarations.
0: Tim, I'm going to let you, as somebody who does spend quite a lot of time trawling through the transparency (laughs) returns of government departments, um, have your say. Can you um, tell us a bit about what the chief Government
4: thinks needs improving in the family system. Yeah, so it won't surprise people. I mean, obviously I agree completely with, with everything that's been been said already. Um, We've we worked very closely with the FDA and with Transparency International on, on this issue for the last couple of years. I mean, I think there's kind of, there are two aspects to this. One is doing the basics right, and I think actually you could argue at the moment Liz Truss is kind of underperforming Johnson on this in that, as Chris said, she doesn't have an ethics advisor, um, and she hasn't, she hasn't committed to that. At least Johnson Kept the one um, from <laughs> A, and then <laughs> appointed well another again. one <laughs> nine months later. So we'll see what we'll see what trust does there. Um, then I think there's yeah the, the uh, recommendations from the CSPL that people have talked about giving that person if that, if someone does take that job, giving them the proper power to start their own investigations rather than having to wait for the PM to ask them mm. to do so. Giving uh, both the role and the code that they enforce a legal underpinning, and all that would do is bring ministers, as Amy said, bring ministers to the same standard as civil servants and special advisors. So there's a code of conduct for civil servants that exists in law, there's a code of conduct for special advisors that exists in law, but the code of conduct for ministers does not. So it's not about making ministers more accountable than anyone else, it's about making them accountable to the same level. Um, I think then there's a question about if you want to go further than the the basics, do you want to set up this new structure, the Independent Ethics Commission that uh, Labour have talked about um, clearly there's an appetite for change, that would be a big move, um, lots of kind of interesting but perhaps geeky questions about how that is run, the IPG would be very interested in terms of, you know, what powers does it have, who, who is it looking at, is it only looking at ministers, is it looking at civil servants, there are various different bodies that look at different bits of this, um, and I think it's more, you know, we've talked about the, the Standards and Privileges Committee, MPs, obviously they do have a special status uh, within our system, they are democratically elected, and so there is throughout all of this, there's been a sense that um, you know, MPs have to hold other MPs to account. You don't want a kind of an unelected Mandarin um, saying to an MP, well, you are no longer fit to be an MP or you are no longer fit to be a member of the government. There has to be a sense that the elected have to sit in, in judgment over the elected. So how you kind of align that with greater and stronger rules, I think, is still unclear. So, It'll be interesting if we hear more um, I think Angela Rain is making her speech today, or if I missed that, I'm not missed sure. That. Oh, I missed that. Yes, that I will time. read the speech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh read the speech. So. Um, but the, the other point I wanted the to make... She did not say I anything about, I, about it, I don't think. I don't think she did. Oh fine. That's well, well okay. I'll read your manifesto with interest. <coughs> um, the other point I wanted to make, and people have kind of alluded to it, is that actually structures and rules and regulations are only so good. What you need is leadership. You need the, you know, the top of the organisation, the Prime Minister... The leader of the party, they have to set the tone, and obviously Boris Johnson failed to set a uh, uh, appropriate tone for um, for government. Um, and and again, it's it's up to to trust to show that she's going to do that differently. I think because this system is operating in a political world, it is always going to come down to those relationships. It's always going to come down to. Um, Uh, The politics and Boris Johnson kind of lent into that and played that to his advantage to keep his allies on side and so on and so forth. If Trust sets an example and says, okay I will be the Prime Minister that enforces these rules, that if somebody breaks them, because inevitably someone will make a mistake and um, shows that okay, this was not good enough and I have high standards, then that will set the tone, that will kind of set the expectations across everyone else. If she, if something happens and she says actually, well this person is an ally of mine I want to keep them and she effectively makes the same mistake that Johnson does, then we're just going to see the system get further and further degraded.
0: Thanks very much, Tim. And as I said at the start, I'm really delighted that Sangam is joining us today. I should say that she was not late, because the time we told her to be here was the time she was actually here. Well, <laughs> I told her to come the wrong time. Spot <laughs> on. <off. laughs> so delighted that you are here yeah, on time it's a pleasure. to join us. Um, and can I ask you obviously in your uh, with your remit as shadow Mm. leader uh your sort of primary focus is on on parliament and and standards within parliament but obviously mps play an enormous role in thinking through how ministers government should be held to account and and uh and, and how standards can be maintained so Uh, what's your your view on the role that Parliament should be playing here?
5: Well, first of all, thank you very much for welcoming me and and thank you for packing the room. (laughs) Um, I think this is is such an important topic. Obviously, I probably would say this because it's my brief, but I think standards matter across every aspect of policy. Uh, I'd like to see a bigger room packed with more people. I'm going to try really hard not to repeat what Chris said Uh, which, as I wasn't here to hear it, may be challenging, (laughs) but I'm going to try and (laughs) mind-read say. we've met before, uh, (laughs) a few (laughs) times. But um, we don't talk about that. But we don't talk about that, yes. Um, So, I just want to sort of focus on why everybody should care, and at the risk of repeating myself, I think it's worth repeating what other people have said, even if everyone else said everybody should care. I don't kid myself there was a golden age when the public said, you know what, politicians, we trust them more than estate agents. I just don't think that ever happened. (laughs) However, I think it matters that we have a system that holds us to account so that we know we are going to be challenged, scrutinised, investigated, um, asked to make amends, correct the record... Um, do reparation, whatever the the uh, matter may require, that matters, it should matter for our own sense of integrity, but it should also matter because whilst I think that the general public usually thinks all politicians are terrible and all the rest of it, quite often they will say, oh but you, to their own individual constituency MP, we we, kind of trust you. And that tends to, from my understanding, work across party lines. Um, so you know, the Tory voters in my constituency will quite often say, "Well, I don't like the Labour Party, but I do trust you. I'm not going to vote for you, but I do think you're quite a good constituency MP." And are there any Tory Tory voters in, in the room? There, I'm not sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but you know, I think that when I talk to colleagues in different parties, I think that's that's roughly the case. So I can't go around all 650 constituencies convincing them I'm I'm a marvellous person. So what do we have to have instead? We have to have a system which says that the committee that Chris chairs has the powers, the resources, but also the support, both sort of soft support and hard support that it needs. And what I found incredibly frustrating, um, and if this is repeating what Chris has said, again, I make no apology, I found it incredibly frustrating that for the last two years, we've had a tone set from the top that says actually the rules don't matter. And that includes the the experience that we had of of standing in a debate, well, being in a debate in the House of Commons where the leader of the House, the representative of government in parliament and parliament in government, literally ripped up the rule book in front of us um, on a standards issue halfway through a process. And I think... That should teach us a lesson because our entire system of parliamentary accountability, the code of conduct, the enforcement that the Standards Commissioner quite properly does independently, and then the Parliamentary Committee on Standards and, and Privileges then takes forward, that is ripped, it rests on an assumption which I, hitherto I had thought was a reasonable one that the person at the top would think it was a good idea that there were standards. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that person has now moved on, but I think there is a damage, there's a lasting damage which has been done. So keen followers of Business Questions, which I'm sure you all are, will know that in my first Business Questions to Penny Mordaunt, the new leader of the House, I asked her when is she going to, when's this Trust going to appoint an ethics commissioner, an ethics advisor, sorry, and... It wasn't a completely definitive answer. I think it was something roughly along the lines of, she's got a long to-do list. So um, I asked her again, You know, where, where is it on that to-do list? And I think that matters not just for what that commissioner can do, but for the symbol it sends that this prime minister will at least try to set a tone of abiding by the rules. So I think we've really learned a lesson in leadership over the last two years, which is it really, really matters. It's, this isn't about my ideological differences with the Tory party. This is about my different approach, or our different approach, and I hope our whole party's different approach to standards and rules to the leader of the Tory party for the last two and a half years. So what will we do? I mean, others have mentioned already um, Angela's, Angela Rayner's announcement about the the, uh, Integrity and Ethics Commission, by and large, that's to strengthen how the Ministerial Code works. And if we're going to get really tacky, the, the Parliamentary Code of Conduct is not the same as the Ministerial Code. We're all bound by the Parliamentary Code of Conduct. I would like to see us be proud as a community of MPs of being bound by the code of conduct i would like us to to make that an explicit code most of my constituents i think didn't know it existed until Um, the uh, then-leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, tried to rip it up halfway through a process that Chris's committee had quite properly gone through. So I would like to see us more proud of it, more open about it, more transparent about what it is, how it works, how it could be strengthened. I would like to see the Code of Conduct Review that Chris's committee has done put to Parliament and Mm. and enacted as soon as possible. I mean, we, we could have done that. There's any number of days, aren't there, Chris, that we could have done it on already. Um, which certainly Chris and I at every possible opportunity have said, there's a day right here, there's an afternoon right here. And if it doesn't go through with unanimous support, I think that also says something really quite troubling, given that we tasked, as Parliament, we asked Chris's committee to do this it is a cross-party committee. Um, It does have external people on it. It, There's there's no reason on earth why we shouldn't be bringing that in now. I think the other challenge that we need to take on as MPs is the tension that some people think there is between the idea, and it is only an idea, that with Chris's committee we're marking our own homework and the fact that unelected people shouldn't be able to boot elected um, representatives out of office. And I think actually that that process, and Chris, please tell me if I'm wrong, I think that process of the fact that we, we ask your committee to do certain things, but we know you're cross party and we know that you have external representatives and there is the role for the standards commissioner, I think it's quite a strong re- way of resolving that tension. Could it be better? Probably always. And, you know, we, we may have our differences about who's on the committee and what they do and all the rest of it. I think finally, the final thing I wanted to say was it should be. A strong signal from a new Prime Minister that she gets out of the way of the inquiry into the Right Honourable Member for (coughs) Uxbridge and South Ryslip. She should get out of its way and go, this is is for this committee to investigate. It is not for me to interfere with. If she interferes, and there's already sort of slight hints there may be possible interference, I certainly think the... Um, the way that the previous government paid for a legal piece of advice for the Right Honourable Member for Uxbridge and South Lip about something which was not about him being a Prime Minister. It was about him being an MP. That is a questionable signal. That should have been already dealt with by the incoming Prime Minister. I know she's had quite a bit to do, but it doesn't take long to say... Boris Johnson needs to repay that money, we will keep out of the way, we will let the committee get on with it. See, that took me 20 seconds, if that. And it doesn't need to take long to set that tone and say we are a different government. Now, that isn't the same as saying Boris Johnson's a liar. Okay? It's, that's for the committee to decide. And it's also not the same as saying, uh, as Liz Truss saying, I think Boris was a terrible Prime Minister or anything like that. It doesn't have to be a politicised statement. It should be one that's based on morals and values and standards, which for us in the Labour Party, this is where I'll finish, should matter because values are what we are built on as a movement. We are nothing without our values. We are. Our history is about our values. And we can't fulfil the values of doing right by working people if we can't be trusted as a body politic, and that matters, that's why that matters to me, I'd like Liz Trust to set that tone, and if she won't, I know... Keir will as the leader of our party owner, Chris will as the chair of Standards and Privileges, and I will as Shadow Leader of the House. By the way, much misunderstood role that I don't think anybody really knows what it is until they have to do it. Um, but, other, yeah, no, you of course you do, Hannah. So anybody, feel free, if you want to do an interesting question in your CLP pub quiz fundraiser of what the Shadow Leader of the House's job actually is, feel free to see me after, afterwards with some coffee. Thank, thank you, Hannah.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I, I want to put a couple of questions to the panel, and then we'll come to the floor. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Um, one, I just I just want to pick up on the distinction you were making there, Thangham, about um, what is uh, what can be done, what should be done uh, by MPs, for MPs, because of the particular mm-hmm. constitutional sort of position mm-hmm. in which they're in. And I understand that the Labour proposal is that the Ethics Commission yeah. wouldn't touch the sort of parliamentary side of, yeah. uh, of standards. Um, yeah. parliamentary privilege, all that stuff. Um, but you, you also made the point about unelected people not deciding on elected people. Mm. Um, and there's obviously one of the concerns that's been raised around the idea of having a sort of big overarching ethics commission mm-hmm. is that in the end, who would be running that and would they have sort of power, as it were, over ministers who are not only elected but also then selected by a prime minister to be in those roles. So how do you manage that tension between needing independence as, as, as Chris has said, you know, mm-hmm. the introduction of, of lay members onto the Standards yeah. Committee in the Commons I think you know, has, been, has been definitely welcomed and seen yeah. as a really good thing. But how do, you, how do you manage that tension of having actually what would be a very powerful figure or figures depending on how you set up the Commission, having sort of power over potentially the enforcement of the Ministerial Code and those things? I,
5: I think one of the ways is the difference between mem- members of the Government and members of Parliament. Um, so the ministerial, uh, the Integrity and Ethics Commission, as overarching body overseeing the Ministerial Code, wouldn't be able to chuck me out as an MP. And that's important because that should be done by my peers with their, um, their external um, members on the Standards and Privileges Committee, and then followed up with a vote by the House, which should, by the way, normally endorse what the committee's done because we don't look at all the evidence. That was one of the many things that was so curious, to say the least, about the Owen Paterson affair. Um, but in relation to the Integrity and Ethics Commission, I think, I think you can resolve that by the fact that it's it's a safeguard against there ever again being a Prime Minister who thinks, do you know what, the Ministerial Code's a little bit optional, and I won't bother enforcing it.
0: Because it's it's statutory.
5: Because it's statutory. Yeah. And I think, you know, at, I believe in Keir Starmer, I think he is a, you know, he's obviously a rule, he's been a rule enforcer, he is a rule maker as a legislator, and I, I back him 100% to stay by those rules but I don't ever again want to see a system so I think he would it would actually mean decisions which were likely to be co anyway between the Prime Minister as Keir Starmer and whoever chairs that Commission however I don't want us ever again to be in a situation where we're reliant on a Prime Minister who could be generously described as casual with the truth and discourteous with ethics I think that's the most diplomatic way I can put it. So that, I I think it matters, actually, and I think the public would get that, but I think we've also got a job of work to do to explain what the difference is and, you know, why the Standards and Privileges Committee is called the Standards and Privileges Committee Mm. as well, Um, and why that matters.
1: Especially when it's two committees. Especially when it's two committees, exactly. (laughs) Um, But, you know,
5: I think of it as one committee with two parts to it. But, you know, it really, really matters, that people understand that because they will not necessarily understand if something goes to the Integrity and Ethics Commission or it only goes to the Standards Committee, but you know never the two shall meet. And I think we've got a job of work to do. But I think we should be proud of that. And I also think that Kia, as Leader of the Labour Party and as Prime Minister, will be setting that tone and I will want to see that. I see that in you know in Angela as Chancellor, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Manchester um as well.
0: And other complicated names. And other very or complicated jobs, so that people names. People don't know yeah, what they are. Call Chris, for the pop quiz. <laughs> Chris, can I um, come to you? I mean, you have had several years now of managing this tension between external sort of independent input and elected um, MPs, and you touched on it in your remarks earlier, but do you think, um, what, what are your, your thoughts on how this, well, this commission would work?
1: I had a really good, incidentally, I, I'm slightly peeved that nobody's ever asked me what I think about the ethics and thing I mean commission.
0: Nobody asked me.
1: <laughs> um, but um, because there are things, I think that from my committee that we might want to make some recommendations around. But um, uh, it, I had a really positive meeting with Penny Morton a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and I think her view—I'm reading between the lines—but my guess is that her view is she wants to close down all these eth- ethics standards issues. She doesn't want there to be any more mm-hmm. scandal between now and the next general election. I think that's difficult because there are several cases—not not my committee mm-hmm. ones—but. Um, several cases coming through the pipeline, which I think, by the end of this Parliament, it will. I think we will have sus- the House will have suspended more members than ever in its history,
2: yeah. by
1: some considerable margin. Yeah. Now that cannot just be about government. No, that must be about something else that's happening yeah. in the body politic, and it may be that actually we have finally woken up and said, you know what, all these behaviours that we've. Um, that we've always dealt with through the Whip's office and we've it mm-hmm. didn't happen, we swept under the carpet, yeah. we're now going, you know what, no, yeah. sorry Chris Pincher, you can't do that, yeah. and, um, and so on. Yeah. Um, however just, you see I, I think Liz Truss is not going to be any better than no. Boris Johnson on the lying front. Yeah, she sat in front right. of the Foreign Affairs Committee and said, right. I personally raised um, human <clears throat> rights issues with leaders of the Gulf states when I was in the Gulf. And now they've, the Foreign Affairs Committee last week published the reply from the Foreign Office, which was meant to be clearing up what she'd said, and there's not a single instance in which she has done so, either personally or impersonally. Um, So, you know, there there is a danger Mm. that we get to a place where people are so casual with the truth and so casual with what they say in Parliament Mm. um, that it's untrustworthy. Mm. And and now, will we just keep on sending things through to the Privileges Committee for successive (laughs) Prime Ministers to be investigated? I hope what people will start to learn is you just can't get away with this. Um, Just one thing about um, processes. we, I, we gave um, um, Owen Patterson a perfectly fair hearing. Yes, you did. Um, uh, anybody who read the report, yeah. I think, came to the same conclusion yes. as we did. And they went, oh, actually, this is a pretty thorough report. Yeah. Um, and indeed, the former head of the Tribunal Service in England and Wales, Ernest Ryder, said that you know, he gave it a clean bill of health. Bill Cash maintains it was a complete disgrace and all the rest of it. He thinks it's a disgrace that there are independent members on that committee. His um, evidence he sent through to us last week. Um, but we will now institute, there will be a proper appeal process and um, we'll clarify each of the different stages. We've already produced this in a report. We're waiting for the standing order changes to be able to put these in effect. But one of the things that I think that is really important at the end of that is that if once we've produced our report, finding a breach of the code and either the member has appealed and mm. they've lost their appeal or they choose not to appeal because they've yeah. seen it, as it were, and they accept yeah. the situation, that should go to the House yeah. with no debate yeah. and without a possibility of amendment. I think that's a really important part mm. of the process because we won that battle in the ICGS, mm. yes. which was really important that we did because yes. we saw what they'd done in the House of Lords. Mm. Thanks to your amendment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. my amendment? Yes. I'm, not, I'm the only person who's won amendments against the government yes. in this Parliament. Um, um, but um, but uh, And it was really important because of what... David Panic yeah. did in the Lord Leicester debate,
5: mm. yeah.
1: So I, I, and interestingly the government have said um, that they will, they accept that, that it should go to, um, to the House without amendment and without debate.
6: Okay.
3: And without a, a whip being applied to, to the vote?
1: Well that would, they would just be lying because there will yeah. always be a whip. Mm. <laughs> right.
6: I mean, I, I would,
1: in, I, you know, I've been in Parliament for 21 years now, I, in my, I have seen a steady erosion of this. There used to be this kind of sacrosanct thing of the House business, you didn't touch, the whips got nowhere near, and you could stand up in the chamber and say, yeah. Mr Speaker, the whips are, yeah. and that's all gone, by the way. And I think all whips. Now. And it,
5: particularly in relation to Owen Paterson, because as you will remember, um, Chris, there were Tory MPs, I mean, really visibly distressed at going into what they knew to be the wrong lobby. Yeah. And the ones that were in the right lobby, and there was a right and a wrong lobby, um, they knew what they'd done they knew there would be consequences they tended to be the MPs who were at a certain point in their career where it no yeah. longer mattered and that was very unfortunate I, I still you know, passionately believe that house business should not be whipped I think it would be misleading to say that there is no whip operating on some level but I saw the whip operating at a very firm level yeah. by the government in relation to the Owen Paterson amendment and that was quite wrong is it also worth mentioning this thing about um, why we can't call each other liars in, in the chamber So if that's been mentioned not yet no mm. Um, I mean, that matters to me, I I have never and will never call someone a liar in the chamber, and as you've seen, I'm quite cautious about doing it even in front of friends and colleagues, and it's because I, I expect a high standard, and I think that's part of the expectations we should be setting each other, and because I have to assume, even if I have very, you know, discourteous thoughts about it, that every word that Chris says in the chamber, he believes to be true and has done his best to evidence, and that if he has inadvertently made a mistake, he will, as an honourable member, and he is an honourable member, come to the chamber at the earliest opportunity and correct it. And that option is open to us all. No, it's not. But, oh no, go on, why? Well, it's it's not open to us
1: all. It's open to government ministers to correct the record. It's not open Mm -hmm. to ordinary members, and that's something Ah. we might want to address. Oh,
5: aren't I allowed to correct my record? Only if well, there's a no formal means scripture. of doing so. Yes, no, no there's no formal means of doing so. It's still there. open you, to me. I can still stand up. On a point of, order you, you, a point you of can, order, you can
1: make yeah. a speech and, yes. in which you say, but but, well, a, but it doesn't link back to the original point on Hansard. Good point. Yeah. And so
5: I, I'm I just saying should, that there is a way of doing it, but yes, okay. Point sorry, to I'm being pernickety.
6: No, 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 pernick away. We should fix that. Yes, it is. Why he said we privileges religious
0: committees doing an inquiry into it at the moment. No, not no. The privileges uh, of uh, procedure. 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 Yes. My committee's meeting with P. No, <laughs> Sorry. you're quite
5: right. <laughs> but I, uh, my point remains that you know we do have ways of being able to say I was wrong, yep. and I think that matters. So I still, at this point, think it is is worth sticking to that standard. Yep. M- and I think you know if we c- if we could make it stronger that there is a requirement and that it is linked back to the original statement, yep, that, that would that would help. But it, it remains an option for anybody who may have inadvertently misled the House to. Un, in, to advertently correct that misimpression.
0: Yeah, uh, but I think that is the, the um, Procedure Committee is looking at a better process for that, and that would be good. Yeah. Just one more quick question, and th- running through this whole discussion has been something about the role of parties, whether it's to do with uh, whipping, whether it's to do with how committees operate and so on. Uh, Amy, I'm, I'm conscious, when we started working on standards processes in the House... Uh, we and, and there was there was no real bullying and harassment sort of process. Actually, how it always worked was cases were sort of raised with whips and something happened behind the scenes for sort of, transparency and so on. We obviously, in terms of the in, internal processes in the house, come a long way with extracting that from being just a party-led process. But it, what's the FDA's position on what the role of parties and the Labour Party and Conservative Party should be in? In improving, you know, where we get to now, because it's not just about our institutions and their processes. Uh,
2: no, absolutely. I think, and I think there is there is a big issue with what goes on in terms of, of parties and what goes on at party conferences and things like that. I mean, our view has always been that the parties should be absolutely out of it. And Dame Laura Cox's uh, inquiry was really clear on this: that um, parties were well, not only, as, as Thangham said you know you'll, you'll support your own colleagues but she actually said that um over staff or parliamentary staff parliamentarians sorry chris uh, I know you don't like the word and um, will always side with each other um, and it will even cross party and um, party lines there and we've seen i think we do like to get a bit hung up on the last couple of years and with um uh boris johnson and and uh, you know the way that he has uh, has led. Government, but we can't forget the circumstances that led up to Dame Laura Cox's report into Parliament, and what um, uh, the the things that that uncovered. That that a lot of us knew uh, were going on, and that the former Speaker and the role that he played in doing a very similar job of all roads led back to the Speaker's office um, and to extract uh, the political interests. Mm. Uh, from this was that it was so incredibly important in getting fairness in bullying harassment and sexual harassment um, uh, claims because it was you know you do get people who were were effectively told you know particularly with party stuff, people who work directly for the MPs so and not FDA members but you know that they were told don't damage the party don't you know and all of these kind of things to stop them putting in their complaints um, and and. It was you know there was a real barrier for such a long time and <coughs> dame R. cox's report just shone such a spotlight on that and said you have to take the politics out of this the political interests must be removed um, and we have to have this this fully independent system um, and just coming back to to the earlier point you know and I, i'm sure hannah you remember when the mps debated and um, putting in the the independent expert panel and even when you were off voting you didn't know how it was going to go. It was a really a, a close vote uh, to get your amendment through um, Chris. And um, what struck me during that debate is you really felt the tide had turned, because MP after MP got up and said, "We might not like this. we're going to clip our own wings, and we might not like this, but we've bought it on ourselves. We've got no one to blame it, for it but ourselves. And you know we can see the same thing with ministerial bullying that they have left. They've backed themselves such into a corner now. That they have nowhere else to go, and um, and I think that this has been, um, you know, that that was the moment that the tide, uh, that the tide really turned. Uh, but I am very very clear that the moment you have party party political interests will always take precedence um, uh, over over fairness. So that yeah. is why we have to have this this independent system.
0: Hello. Thanks very much, Amy. I'm going to come to the floor now for questions. I think we'll take them in groups of three. My colleague Jeremy has a roving mic, and he's going to press the little red button on the bottom of the roving mic, if there is one. I'm told there's one. Great. Uh, should we take uh, three questions in a row? Should we take these, these three here?
7: Great. Thanks very much. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah. Could you tell us who... Uh, w-
7: Sorry, I'm Jill. I'm a delegate in Bath. Um, the checks and balances are really important, and it seems very much that a lot of this is seeked further to local government in particular. Um, Trying to find ways for members of the public to interrogate what's going on in local government I think is really important. The Office of the Information Commissioner is stretched beyond, you know, and what Duncan was saying about those holding spaces for FOIs is something which, you know, ordinary people do not have the energy to do that. So advice from you all on what can be done at that level would be fantastic. Thank you. Um, Gail Barton, I'm a councillor in Burnley. Now, um, public sector again, Um, sorry, uh, local, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, so recently, um, a few of our councillors, not Labour councillors, have been hauled in front of our standards committee because of their behaviour. They've both been commanded to say sorry. This was a month ago. None of our councillors have received this written apology and one of those councillors has now quit. Can we really have this conversation about standards of, you know, standards in public life without having the conversation about standards in everyday life? The pipeline of future MPs that we have coming through, those judgments around what they think is morally and ethically mm-hmm. effective—they're being formed in their childhood and youth and early adult careers. Amy talked about bullying, but actually, that's endemic in our UK, um, you know, workforce. Ma- good management is very often taking that bullying mantra. So, actually, my, my question is isn't this a little bit like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted?
6: Tom Brake
3: from Unlocked Democracy. This is a question, I guess, for the, the politicians, and that is, is there anything more that political parties should be doing internally to try to hold their MPs and, indeed, ministers to account? And just in relation to what Chris was saying about Liz Truss and whether or not she reported all the meetings that she's been at... Uh, I'm not sure whether it's been published yet, but the evidence we submitted to PACAC's select committee around their lobbying inquiry uh, lists a number of examples where certain ministers haven't uh, completed the returns completely, and she is one of them.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Duncan, do you want to start with yes. the local yes. government Yes. Well, um, Jill and Gail, yeah,
3: I mean, thank you both for, for raising local government. We need to have a conversation about standards in local government. Uh, it needs to go hand-in-hand hand with... Um, the, the much more popular conversation, at conference, fringe meetings about devolution of power. Um, we've published some reports about some of the corruption risks uh, in in local government. Um, uh, you know, w- someone said earlier that um, talked about leadership. One of mm-hmm. the Nolan principles is leadership. You know, the Labour Party may not be in government in Westminster yet, but the leadership of the Labour Party is in a position of influence over the way. Um, uh, it fields, and as you say, develops a pipeline of political careers uh, through its local government base. Um, you know, we, we would like to see an end to councillors uh, sitting on planning authorities in one committee and working for lobbying companies representing developers lobbying their peers and colleagues in neighbouring local authorities. Um, we, we need to address that particular revolving door because actually um, when when sleaze occasionally isn't in the headlines, if you ask the public what are their concerns about you know, th- these issues in terms of um, decision making, they will often talk to you about <coughs> them. And you know, instead, what we have is an agenda uh, which is to um, uh, make it easier and easier for a small number of people to drive through really big changes. Now, they may be changes that are needed. I'm not. I'm not objecting to the. Particular proposals, but it needs to be done in a way that the public can have confidence is above board, and whether it's you know free ports or enterprise zones, uh, or um, uh, you know representatives of developers having unmean unminuted meetings with local authority planning officers. That there are some quite simple things that we could do to give the public more confidence that um, their elected representatives um, know full well that the public are their boss. not companies that they might be working
4: for to help get something through somewhere else. And if I could just add so I was at the um, the LGA's conference in Harrogate earlier this year and they were talking about this cause it, and I I went expecting them to be talking about kind of abuse of councillors by the public and actually what was astonishing mm-hmm. to me was how much kind of intra-councillor abuse there is, you know, people even within the same party groupings but also cross parties <clears> and it, it it's clear that there is yeah, I think I guess because it's local issues, people perhaps feel particularly strongly. And yes, planning and development is obviously one of the big ones, but you know, parking and bins make people angry, right? And so there is a huge amount of strong feeling in that space. And so all that is to say is that the LGA, I know, are active and thinking about this space. They did a big report earlier in the year, which has lots of kind of evidence about how much of a problem this is and some various recommendations and things there. So have a read for that as well.
0: Sam, do you want to address both of those? Yeah.
5: I'm. Um I think, in terms of the technicality of local government, I've not been in local government, but I think that there should be consistency of uh, there could. I think we, we we should be looking at a consistency of rules on lobbying between local and and, and national. Um, I but I, I would just particularly what Tom said. I think we should be leading, not not just engaging with, but actually leading on national discussions about values. And you know, we we all visit schools, as you know, and and we should be engaging with that as a topic. Um, when we visit schools, when we visit um, other pub- when we have other public meetings. I think we should be ready to have an explicit public debate about what that means. I'm going to be a bit cheeky as well and say that I think that also then needs to explicitly work both ways. Um, because I've never called the people of Bristol West any of the names that I've been called when I voted away that they didn't like. And I think that there's got to be some at least debate about, well, you know, wh- what do we expect from each other? Um, I do think I'm in a position of power. I accept my power, the power imbalance between me and the people I represent. Absolutely, 100%. I just don't happen to think it makes for particularly good decision making um, if what we are, what we then expect, is, is poor behaviour. Um and i I've, I've by no means had the worst of it um that I know other colleagues have had, but I think that that sort of speaks gail to your your point about you know a wider discussion about standards of of in of behavior in everyday life and what do we expect from each other, and what's our courage like if we witness something that's that's bad behaviour and, and and I think that that's that's difficulty difficulty with that is we're now in a context where everything that um, the party and government in particular, but others as well, don't like about discussions about values is criticised as being woke or, or or just you know sort of nonsense and irrelevant and and I think that that debases actually something that's really important along with a whole load of other things that are really important by the way. Um, whenever I hear the government party in particular, but others as well, just criticise something as being woke, I think then it's probably something that I agree with. <laughs> and not, not always, but you know, it, it's important that we don't let standards be trivialised under this banner of wokery, anti-wokery, um, that not just the government, but particularly the government party are peddling.
1: Chris? Uh, I was a councillor for five years in Hackney. <clears throat> and it was uh, the most brutal political experience in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was chief whip. I chucked, I think, 18 members out of the Labour group because of um, shenanigans, uh, thereby depriving us of a majority of the council. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it was necessary. I, I, it, it all started when I had to ring up one of the Labour councillors who... Um, was quite prominent and saying, no, you cannot lobby other members of the council on behalf of a charity that your husband runs. Yeah, yeah, you cannot. Yeah. Um, she's, now a, she's now a lived Dem peer. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, it can be very, very brutal. And but that, and and at the time, it was particularly brutal because a, 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 what was weaponised was a story about a, boor, a about, about a man who would worked for the council, um, who um, had, it turned out to be a. Terrible pedophile, and so all the gay members on the council got really hateful stuff. You know, shit put through our doors, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. It was really very, very unpleasant. Um, and 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 some of that is still around in local government. Mm. Sometimes it can be yeah. even more virulent than ever, anywhere else. Um, but I do have a worry about who wants to get into politics today. And I, mm. and the you know social media does pl- has played yeah. a role in this. Mm-hmm. I would take anonymity out of social media. I mm-hmm. know people say that it 's very important that it remains i don 't understand why people say things on social media mm-hmm. in, behind an, uh, anonymous accounts which they would never say anywhere else and also uh, some um, a guy called Ben Nimo from um, I do not know what the company's called. Anyway, they, they've tracked um, my um, social media, mm-hmm. and quite a lot of it looks like 150 people hate me for all sorts of different mm-hmm. reasons, um, but it turns out that it's one person who started something in St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. um, and then it's been replicated by 80 people, all of whom have eight followers who are mm-hmm. each other. And so, yeah. uh, and I don't think we've done any... I'm mm-hmm. still angry that we've not published the proper Russia report, because yep. Um, yep. I, I suspect that... Um, there, there was some very consistent and deliberate targeting um, and I worry that political parties in, the country, in this mm. country um, will turn to some of those um, uh, practices to try and destabilise and get people out. Um, the one thing I do to, to make um, sure that parties did due diligence about their candidates before they become <laughs> candidates yes. um, is have fixed term parliaments because mm-hmm. when you have mm-hmm. sudden elections, it means that sudden, quick decisions and sometimes inappropriate decisions, mm-hmm. like Jared O'Mara, yeah. I feel more sorry for Jared O'Mara than anything else. We, sh- we didn't have a due diligence and due care towards him. Yeah. He should never have been a candidate never. put in, in that kind of position. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if you talk to Tories at the moment, many of them will say, there are lots of people who've become MPs because we had a snap election in 2019 mm. who should never even have been councillors, let alone yeah. members of Parliament. Yeah. It's a pretty brutal Parliament, I have to tell you. Yeah. And, and as I say, I think there will be more people removed from Parliament before um, we get to January 2025, which is when I think the election will be. Um final thing I'd say is if you want to see um, about the pipeline, just look at um, Wendy Morton's husband and his previous experience in local government.
0: We'll go away and do that. <laughs> uh, let's have some more questions. So uh, can we have the three along the back? So the lady in the corner and then there's two gentlemen in the back. Yes.
8: Thank you. Um, oh. Is it on? Um, my name's Ellie Combo and I'm a new councillor and long, long-standing Labour member and I'm here in that capacity. But I'm also head of public law at the Law Society. So I can't afford to have my rose-tinted glasses on about the Labour Party and whether or not we always love the uh, paraphernalia of accountability, especially when we're in government, um, which is... Which is the rules doing their job, right? They are supposed to be annoying, they are supposed to get in the way. I suppose the gap that I'm noticing at the moment in the conversation is we're not really talking about the role of party members who aren't just leaflet deliverers, they're the selectors. Um, They are the beginning of the pipeline um and let's not kid ourselves if you go and sit down on the sofa of one of your influential local members and ask for their vote they're not going to ask you about the nolan principles they're going to ask you whether you agree with them on x or y issue mm. so what do we need to do to make selectors party members make better decisions is it that we we just educate them or do we actually need to look at uh, reform of um, of the way that we choose our candidates and, and a lesser role for members mm.
0: very interesting thank you mm.
6: Um, yeah, George the um, um, Society of Labour Lawyers. Um, one of the things I do in my day job is I'm a, a barrister specialising in public law. I do quite a lot of work for the government and have done for 20 years. One of the things that um, I, and I think everybody else who does work for government has noticed over that period, is the fairly spectacular diminution in record-keeping that um, files are incomplete, that key decisions, there seem to be no records of who took them and why. The pinnacle of all of this, of course, is well-known cases where it seems that decisions have been taken by WhatsApp message or by <coughs> ministers' their <coughs> uh, personal emails, and that's, that's a very disturbing tip of the problem. But I think there is a deeper problem generally about record keeping. I suspect when Thangam gets into government and tries yeah. to She'll find very rapidly that one of the problems is, yeah. is that yeah. there just aren't records explaining why things were done and a complete lack of institutional memory. But of course, you can't have accountability, you can't have transparency yeah. if the records aren't kept in the first place. Mm. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, James Bolton-Jones from Spotlight, Spotlight on Corruption. Um, political donations. So, some, some parties' uh, media reports suggest have received uh, donations deriving from the proceeds of crime, corruption, etc., which I think degrades trust in the broader system of standards in public life. Do the panelists think well, well? Firstly, what what could be done about this? And would one solution possibly be um, doing uh, due diligence checks on the source of party funds?
0: Another excellent set of questions, thank you very much. Chris, do you want to kick off with any oh. of those?
1: Uh, right. Um, <laughs> I was coast on the back of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they can coast on the back uh, of you. <laughs> Ellie, just about party members. I don't I, Actually, when I got selected, nobody asked me about my views on politi- policy at all. Yeah. It was much more about my personality. Yeah. And in fact, weirdly, one of the opponents started telling people that I was gay. And it's and it. I am, by the way, Um, (laughs) but only slightly. um, But the 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 weird thing was. I, I hadn't known how to start telling people because when you, you know, hello Mrs. Jones, um, just like to introduce myself. Oh, by the way, I'm gay. You kind of, you just don't think it's the most important thing to raise when you're sitting on somebody's sofa for the first time with a cup of tea, um, and it gave me an opportunity to say at the hustings, at the yeah, the hustings meeting. By the way, you know, I'm gay and I live with my partner. I want to be the Labour candidate, not the gay candidate, all that kind of mm. stuff. And it got the stirring round of applause and probably helped me win the selection. So I think. Um, Lots of parties are better at it, but they do need some assistance. And um, and in some places, where, especially where you've got very very large membership, like three four thousand members, it's very difficult to maintain that. My husband went to Keir Starmer's selection um, in in re selection meeting in the run up to um, the last general election, and it, he said it was the most hateful meeting he'd ever been to in his mm. life. Um, so I mean, sometimes you know. I don't know how we changed that, mm. that culture. Mm. Um, George, I think you'll find that all the records are in Mar-a-Lago. But you make a very good point about, I, I mean, I, I actually, I'm also, because I have a second job as a, as a, historian, as a sort of fake historian, um, I'm conscious that you know, historic, history relies on being a f- pieces of paper in the main. And God knows what we'll be able to determine from this period. Uh, but I, and I, it's a serious point about America as well. I think some of the ways of um, things have seeped over from the U- United States to here. Um, Trumpism is reflected in what we have here. And not least because I, I find it distasteful that all these people who sort of run election campaigns for um, prime ministers, in, they basically freelance all around the world. They have no investment in the country where they are, Um, you know, it's just some kind of ideological game. And I think that's pretty despicable. I wonder whether there's something we could do about that. Maybe we could say you can't be a political advisor to um, a, um, you know, a a party machine unless you are able to vote in that country. I've only just dreamt that one up. (laughs) Um, uh, Political donations, uh, you know, very good point. just as company's house has no means of re- uh, checking whether anything that's registered yeah. with it is actually actually accurate, um, it will have so soon, but I think the Electoral Commission needs to be given proper powers rather than have no powers whatsoever. There's a bit of an oddity about crowdfunding. Mm. Um, I, I just noticed that somebody who is presently facing legal action has cr- uh, crowdfunded for their legal action mm. and they've raised an awful lot of money, mm. but I just, happen to look, and some of the donations are £5,000, £10,000 £15,000, anonymous donor. Yeah. Well, that's not on.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, you know, we've got to change that as well.
0: Tim, can I come to you as someone who's written an entire report on the role of WhatsApp in government? Yes.
3: 140 characters. Yeah, exactly.
4: I think it's a, really important, it's a really important question. I mean, first off, it's worth saying record-keeping government is always difficult. I think since things move to digital records, uh, you know, every there's a new system every few years, there's a new filing system every few years, kind of transferring those over. Obviously, a big dusty filing cabinet is takes up space, but at least the paper is still readable in 20 years' time, whereas now everything is done electronically, it's much more difficult generally. WhatsApp has kind of been in the news during the pandemic in particular. We actually think uh, at the IFG, there are there are a lot of benefits of WhatsApp. It's quick. It allows people to get things done. The government machine is slow, and sometimes it's helpful for people to have kind of the equivalent of face to face conversations when they're not face to face to just get things moving. Um, but that obviously has to come with a the limit. There for mm-hmm. proper decisions, those need to be recorded. The kind of rationale behind those decisions mm-hmm. needs to be recorded. The problem you have with WhatsApp is not one hundred and forty characters, but it is inevitably a very short kind of you can't have a full discussion you can't have kind of weigh up the pros and cons mm. we saw in the Dominic Cummings um, where he took a photo of his uh, screen of, of all the whatsapp messages like in some messages uh, Simon Case was in the group and in some messages Simon Case wasn't in the group and there's you know it, it's very easy to kind of construct a conversation and in- engineer a decision without certain people knowing mm. whether that's deliberate mm. or just you know, it was a quick, busy day, and you forgot to add someone. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that there isn't going to be that. It's it's both about record keeping, but it's about the flow of information in the moment as well. It's not nec- the right information isn't going to get to the right people as easily or as uh, formally as it would on a different means of communication. So I think I think that is it is really important. I mean, the the problem always with record keeping is it's not very sexy, right? Is people people don't care about it, not because. Of anything nefarious but because they've got other things to be doing it's always going to be the bottom of your to-do list of oh I must file this, I must save this away um, and that's true for civil servants it's true for ministers it's true, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really important thing but is never anyone's priority and it's never anyone's main job so. Totally yes. the next.
3: Um, so I think it's a really important question from Ellie though not one that I feel particularly qualified mm. to, to answer my, my hunch is that there is something in um, what you might call wisdom of crowds, or, or the benefit of having a uh, a minimum number of people involved in that kind of decision, uh, so you don't have you know very small constituency associations getting captured by a, um, obscure attitude from a small number of people, or, or something even worse. Um, uh, but I'm not going to say any more because I, I don't really think I've, I've got all the answers there. But I didn't want to ignore the question. Um, I think we'll learn more about this. What's that problem when we get the COVID inquiry? Yeah. Um, uh, other government yeah. inquiries, I think, we've, we've seen some of the problems with presenting records and, and you know uh, it doesn't help when, when government puts off as long as possible the actual start of those in- inquiries because mm. time, time really degrades um, the quality of information that can be collected. And then um, uh, James's question about uh, donations, right? I mean, it's not part of political point. Donations have been a problem for all political parties. Um, but um, you know, back to my critique of transparency uh, at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, it's not enough for this information to public domain, there needs to be some consequence, right? There needs to be some consequence for giving a parliamentary pass to the, uh, uh, a donor of yours, his son, to have in your parliamentary office uh, who's doing legal work for the Chinese Embassy. Right. There needs to be a consequence of <coughs> failing to do due diligence about the source of funds of very large donors to your political party. Uh, and uh, too often, we, we get some pretty mealy-mouthed responses from political parties, all political parties, of, well you know, we, we we followed all the rules as they apply, as if that's all the public care about. Actually, the, the, the public don't want the politicians that you offer to serve the public interest to be captured by private or even foreign state interests. Uh, and uh, I think if... M- my last thought on this, I don't think I'm going to get another shot. Um, uh, uh, you, you burnish your great history in this party, and, and it's a great history. Uh, other political... Part- well, you as well, but other political parties work hard on having the most attractive manifesto. But I- I- in my experience, a lot of people uh, end up voting on who they feel you and your party to be. And so actually getting a grip of these questions about standards, about the, the way you do what you do as, uh, as politicians, it is, is I think ultimately um, much more important than remarks about how often does this come up on the doorstep actually reflect. I think this is an underlying factor in how people form their political attitudes. And so I'd encourage you and your leaders to really grasp the nettle on it.
5: Thanks, so the va- the Well, The advantage, word. yeah, the advantage of going last is that most people have already said loads of good stuff, so I can just <laughs> piggyback All as Chris intended to. Um, I remember going to, I was in Chicago in 2000 and whenever, at 2007 2008, the Obama elections anyway, and my niece, bless her, had given me a fiver of her pocket money, which she wanted me to donate to the campaign. Wow. And I can remember the campaign volunteer just look in look of horror when I said, <laughs> But she's my niece, she's a child, she's not trying to corrupt your election. She said, that, you know, I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> <laughs> Went away and got me some bumper stickers, and I didn't have the heart to say I don't have a car, because that wouldn't have translated either. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as a, as a working hypothesis, there shouldn't be a way round having to declare donations, including crowdfunding. You know, £10,000 and £15,000, whatever the cause is, if you are an MP or a candidate, that, that is a way of getting money into your political life. So I'm just going to put that as a political hypothesis, and I'm just just sort of staring that at my political advisor, Peter, um, so he can write that down. I, I, Ellie, I'm trying to remember my in original selection, and I'm glad to say it's a bit of a blur. <laughs> I don't remember anybody asking me about policies, Chris said, and that's in Bristol West where you think everybody <clears> would. <throat> um, and somebody in Bristol West is probably going to put their hand up now and say, yes, I asked you about fracking or something, but yeah. I honestly don't remember that happening. I do also, however, have a memory of my husband coming back from our branch meeting in the 2019 selections. It was the biggest branch um, in one of the biggest membership CLPs in the entire country, and said, "I want you. I don't want you to be an MP anymore." And I won that one, <laughs> you know. And and you know, it was, it was, it was not a bit. It was neither about policy nor honour, or standards. It was about something else. So you know, I, I think that. The way we select our MPs is always going to be a work in progress. I don't think a perfect method exists. I do feel accountable to my, to the members of the Bristol West Labour Party, and I think I should, but I feel accountable to the people of Bristol West you know, above all above absolutely all so sorry members of the Bristol West Labour Party if any of you are here Um, I I think there has to be once you are elected a higher level of accountability and you have to be able to stand by that I think it would be amazing if somebody at at my next trigger ballot actually did say list the seven Nolan sisters as we call them in my office (laughs) (laughs) because you know I I, I can actually recreate the entire of I'm in the mood for dancing Um, and that will only work if you were around in the 1970s Um, so I I would like you, I encourage you all to go back to your CLPs and in the next quiz that you're running as a fundraiser, see if anybody else remembers what all of the Nolan principles or Nolan sisters are, but also what do they mean. Every single job interview I have conducted as an MP, I have presented the candidates with a list of the principles and said, explain to me how you will embody these in the course of this job. And I have to say... When they don't get past that particular question, it's fairly early on in the interview, Um, basically the rest of the interview is just coasting. Um, That's the most important one to me and I recommend that to all colleagues.
1: Can I just do two tiny things? You can. One, just to answer Duncan's thing about uh, foreign money, um, I think we do need to do something about foreign money in Mm. Parliament. Mm. Um, it, it, and, and not least because the security advisers are very keen that we do. Yes. They are worried that we are we're a, an open door, really. Mm. And one of the things I do, I, I believe in MPs visiting other countries because I think mm. that's an important part of um, uh, international relations. Um, um, but I think we should pay for it. Mm. I don't yeah. think, I think MPs should be paid for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I say this having gone to Qatar last year, which was the. I only went so as to tell them. What a terrible, yeah, that it was disgraceful that they had the World Cup. And it was the most tedious visit I've ever been on in my life. But, I mean, basically, if we think British MPs should be going to other countries, we should be paying for it. Yes, agreed.
6: Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this. Thank you for being a brilliant audience. Thank Thank you you to a wonderful panel. I think it's a really good discussion and covers some really important issues. I think we can agree that these issues are complicated but extremely important and they run right from the grassroots at party level up to the highest level of our <coughs> Prime Minister. So, um, thank you all for joining us so early. Um, I can encourage you to, jo- to join us for some other IFG mm. events uh, conference. We have 14 events uh, on subjects running uh, from uh, levelling up to net zero. Uh, tomorrow, uh, some uh, a very interesting one which might interest some of you on how we should govern in a digital age, in which I think some of the issues we've come up today will repeat themselves. Yeah. But it just remains to thank once again the FDA for uh, sponsoring this event. Thank you.